today we're beginning a brand new series called Choose Joy. And the reality is, is that joy really is a choice. And the book of the Bible that we're going to kind of look at for this summer focuses on this concept of joy, and it's called Philippians. And in your program, uh, you received a little uh, reading plan for the summer that has weeks 1 through 10. Now, don't look at this and get overwhelmed. The most you would ever read is 20 verses. But on one Sunday, I'll teach on it, and then during that week, I want to challenge you to go ahead and read through those verses. And each day, maybe, you would read through them, and it becomes more ingrained, and you make some changes in your life, and all of a sudden, you have more joy. Now, if you need a Bible, you're here for the first time, you're like, hey, I don't have a Bible. If you go to the resource table, we have free Bibles that you can be a part of, or you can have. You don't have to be a part of it. You can just take it. Um, But also, if you're more of a techie person, there's a great um, app called the YouVersion of the Bible. And it's basically an, an app that you can download on your smartphone, and there are many different translations. There are devotions, other tools that you can be a part of. It's one that uh, our family actually uses for our family devotions. And so at night, we pull it out. We have a family devotion. You click on it. Uh, you read some questions uh, together as a family. You pray. And uh, it's been a huge gift to us. So either one of those uh, options uh, would encourage you to do that. And I'm confident that if you'll do this, if you'll kind of say, you know what, I can, I can read 20 verses in a week, or you know what, I'm going to do it each day, that if you would do that, by the time we get to the end of the summer, your joy meter is actually going to go up. You're going to be a more joy-filled person at the end of the summer than you are today. And uh, we'll look forward to that. And Let's face it, some of you need more joy in your life. So uh, this is a way to do that. Now, this word joy is kind of complicated because sometimes when we first hear this word, we're not uh, so familiar with it. And for me, for the first 15 years of my life, this word joy was not related to happiness or something connected to God's goodness. For me, this word joy was connected to fear, anxiety, and worry. And I'll tell you why. My two best friends' mom was named Joy. The only problem was she was not a very joy-filled person. She was just kind of angry and upset a lot. And part of that was probably because she had five sons who lived in her house. It's kind of like, you know, they're real cute and loving with one, and then they're okay with two, and three, you survive. And once you get to four and five, you're just like, they're squeezing the joy out of me, okay? And this is what was happening with her. She also owned a restaurant in Van Buren, Indiana, which is a small little town, and it was hard work to try to make it work. And she would work 12 hours a day, and then she would come home and have to deal with all of these five boys. And whenever I would come over, I was not always the most obedient child. Um, Actually, I got them in a lot of trouble. We even got in trouble with the law one time for shooting bottle rockets at cars. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just confessing. You know, confession helps the heart. And um, so 
Joy really struggled uh, with having to deal with me and all of her sons. And so this word joy never had a pleasant tone to it for me. For example, these are some of the things I could remember happening. Joy is going to be here in 30 minutes. Make sure the house is clean or she's going to whip us. That was not a very exciting time. I think Joy's car is coming down the lane. Uh, What we need to do is run inside the house because we're all supposed to be grounded. Okay, that doesn't work. Or, uh uh-oh, Joy's here. Do you think the chandelier that we just broke, she's going to be upset about? We broke her crystal chandelier that she loved. It was worth all kinds of money. We had a pillow fight. We damaged it all. And maybe the worst time I ever heard this word joy was right after that moment of that happening. She walked into the house, saw what was happening, picked up the phone, called my dad. John, this is joy. They broke the chandelier. Get your boy now. Now, I'll tell you, it was not a joy-filled day when I got home that day. You know, I mean, Billy the Belt came out and there was no joy. Now, when you get this word joy in your mind, what comes to your mind? Now, for some of you, it might be an angry mom who you probably pushed a little too much growing up. For others of you, you might say, when I think of the word joy, I think of the word happiness. For some of you, joy comes to you when you get the promotion, you get the job, you get the new house, the new car, the new TV, the new clothes, whatever that is. And you're like jumping with joy because you have this. Maybe for some of you, joy only comes at Christmas when you sing joy to the world. Maybe it's a word that describes your children, that when your children first come, that you look at them and you're like, oh, they're a bundle of joy. They are such my pride and joy. But maybe this morning you're sitting there and you hear this word joy and the reality is you're like, man, I can't remember the last time that I felt joy. I can't remember when I heard it last. I can't remember the last time that I even said the word. You know, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I go through my day and I think, why didn't I choose joy this morning? It's like I woke up in the morning and even before I got out of bed, I already had a negative, bad attitude and I didn't choose joy. I wonder sometimes, why don't I choose joy in the morning? But I'm sure I'm the only one that struggles with that, right? Like all of you, wonderful, wake up out of bed. Hallelujah, love Jesus. It's going to be a joy-filled day. Maybe. But sometimes we can get through our whole day and we get at the end of it and we're like, there's just not been any joy. Or you go to work and the drag of work comes and you actually get beat up and you feel kind of depressed and you get home. And it's just like you have the joy sucked out of you. You have relationships in your life. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a a brother or sister or a friend. Someone who is just a joy killer. They just have this tendency to kill the joy, whatever's going on in your life. Well, I think God must have known that you and I were going to struggle with this concept of joy. And so he actually wrote an entire book in the Bible. It's actually a letter called Philippians. And this summer, that's what we're going to be looking at. Learning about this. It's four chapters long, not very long, but we're going to learn about it so that we can increase our joy. 
Now, anytime we come together and we're looking at a new book of the Bible, what's really important is to kind of understand the background of it. Like, what has happened within the midst of it? Like, who wrote it? Um, When was it written? Those kind of things. And so, let me just run through this pretty quickly. It's in your program as well, or you can look on your app. But the person who wrote this book called Philippians, or this letter called Philippians, is a guy by the name of Paul. And Paul actually wrote close to half of the New Testament. He loved people, and he was connecting with people. And he had this concept of joy that was just evident. Now, one of the struggles that you and I have with this word of joy is that we don't always understand the definition of it. And so what I want to do here at the very beginning is I want to give you a definition of joy. Because for many of us, when we think of joy, what we think of is happiness. That I'm just happy. Well, that would be impossible for us to be happy all the time. There are things that happen in our life that are not happy, that are difficult, that are struggles. And so joy becomes that thing that says it's not based upon the circumstances of my life. It goes beyond that. And this is kind of your first fill in the blank our definition of joy. And this is what it says. Joy is the assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life and that ultimately everything is going to be all right. So I will praise God in every situation. That joy is the assurance that God is in control even when I'm not of all the details of my life, and ultimately everything is going to be all right, so I will praise God or I will lift him up, I'll honor him in every situation. You see, joy is this supernatural gift that comes from God to you and I, and Paul talks about that, and we'll give some more background here in a second. Now, again, God must have known that we would struggle with this, so he gave us this book. And Part of this whole process of understanding joy is understanding the guy who wrote it, Paul. Now, Paul, for much of his life, was not a joy-filled person because he was so legalistic. He made God to be placed into a box, and if you couldn't understand his God, he would take you out. In fact, he was a pious Jew who actually helped to destroy Christians. He hated Christians. He actually stood beside as Christians were murdered. And so here is a person who doesn't understand too much about joy whatsoever. And one day he's walking down this road called Damascus and he's ready to actually just kill some Christians that are there. And he's walking down this road when all of a sudden there is some roadside service that comes to him. But he hadn't called for it. It wasn't AAA. It was actually the presence of Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes to him and he says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul, all of a sudden, is confronted by Christ and his life totally changes. And he decides, you are the one. I've put God in this box and I've had no joy. And it's because I didn't recognize that you are the only way. You are God's son. And so he keeps walking until he gets to a town called Jerusalem in Israel. And when he gets there, he walks into a whole group of Christians. 
And as he walks in, he goes, hey, he goes, hey, guys, guess what? I'm one of you. I'm a Christ follower now. Now, let me ask you a question. If there was a person that was killing your friends, Christians, and all of a sudden they come to you and they say, hey, I've turned a new leaf and I'm not killing Christians anymore. I love you guys. What would you do? It's a three-letter word. Run! That's what you would do. You would actually run. You would try to get away. I mean, if someone's killing some of my friends and we're all believing the same thing, I want to get out of there. I want to get away from it. And miraculously, this is what God does. He takes this guy who was murdering Christians and he turns him into the greatest missionary that the Christian world has ever known. In fact, the reason why you're here, the reason we have a church, the reason why we have much of the New Testament is because of this guy who was a murderer that Jesus took, turned his life upside down, and he became the one who delivered the message to the rest of the non-Jewish world. That's what God does. He takes lives. He turns them around. And through the power of Christ, Things are turned upside down. Now, as he's uh, writing to this particular group of people, he's writing this letter because he goes to Philippi, this place in present-day Greece, and he uh, starts this church, just like the jar was started. He starts a church, but he leaves, and he starts some other churches, and then he gets in trouble with the law, and he's in jail. And so he's writing from Rome in Italy to this church, and he's letting them know that he's all right. And he wrote it around 60 A.D., so about 25 years, around 25 years after uh, Jesus had died and rose again and 500 people witnessed him, he goes to heaven, and after that, Paul comes on the scene and things are changed. And the whole purpose of him doing this, of writing this letter, was to thank this church for a financial gift. You see, the problem was when you were in jail in New Testament times, the problem was is that there was no cafeteria. There was no bowling alleys. There was no card playing. You were in jail. You were stuck. And the only way that you would get fed is if family or friends brought you food. Otherwise, you starved to death. And many people did. But Paul had these groups of people that would send gifts and would bring food, and he was cared for. And so he writes back to this church in Philippi, and he says, Hey, guys, thank you so much for this gift, and I want to encourage you. Even though I'm in jail, this is the greatest message in the world, and you need to be encouraged to follow Christ. And the whole theme, which is the theme for this summer, is the theme of this book. And it's that word, joy. Fourteen times in these four chapters, either the word joy or rejoice is actually used. And so it's amazing to see the joy that's concentrated in this one small book. So there's a little bit of background into that, and now we're going to dive in. You ready? Boy, that sounded real encouraging. Uh, Well, let's go home, folks. We got nothing better. Are you ready? All right. All right, let's get some joy in our life before we leave today. Here we go. It starts out this way in chapter 1. 
Paul and Timothy. We've already talked about Paul. He wrote over half of the New Testament. Timothy was just his right-hand man, his sidekick. It goes on to say servants are some translations will actually say slaves of Jesus Christ. In other words, these guys chained themselves to Christ and they said, Jesus, you're the master of my life. You realize that people have masters of their life, like you have a master of your life right now. Whatever you give the most time, the most allegiance, the most honor to, that's who is the master of you. These guys said Jesus would be our master, will be his slave. Then it goes on to say, So Paul and Timothy, servants, slaves of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, that Philippians in the middle of Greece, together with the elders and deacons. Now, sometimes we read words in the Bible and we're like, I don't even know what that is. So elders and deacons were just leaders uh, that were named to help lead a church. For example, here at the jar, we have three elders. Uh, They'll come up on the screen here. Uh, Up to the far left uh, is Chuck Mock, and then to uh, the right of him is Abby Guthrie, and then at the bottom is Tom Truesdale. And these individuals meet with me twice a month, and we spend time in prayer uh, asking for God to give us direction on how we can best kind of have oversight and guidance for the church. Now, our deacons uh, are basically our small group leaders. Everything that functions in the jar outside of Sunday functions in groups of people meeting in their homes. And the person who's the small group leader is like a deacon or they're a person who cares for, shepherds for, cares for a group of people. Very cool thing. A couple weeks ago, we had a person uh, in the church who had battled cancer for two and a half years and she died. And the lover of her life was all by himself. And now he's having to do life that way. But they had a small group. And that small group came into the house, cared for him, had a meal for all the family, have continued to reach out and to bless his life in amazing ways. And the small group leaders were the ones who organized it, who said, we're going to care for them. So there's these deacons and these elders that he's writing to. And as he writes to them, he gives this greeting. He says, grace and peace to you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's stop there for a second. I have a question for you this uh, morning. Who is the first person to ever coin the phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is it? Okay, we just read it, and I told you his name. He wrote this book. What's his name? Go ahead. Don't, don't be bashful. It's good. What's his name? Yeah, his name is Paul. He wrote it. He's the first person ever to coin this phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, personally, I love that phrase. The whole reason why the jar exists is to honor and to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, let's all say this phrase out loud together, okay? It'll come up on the screen at the bottom, I think, or just the end of the statement. Let's say it out loud together. One, two, three. The Lord Jesus Christ. One more. The Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so what do those words mean? The Lord. Lord means that he is the ruler of the universe. Everything you see and understand, Jesus is Lord of the universe. The second word there is Jesus. His personal name that was given to him by his father is a name that means one who saves. 
The whole reason why he came was to save people from their hurt and struggles and sin and to make them whole or complete. Now, when we think of this word save, uh, sometimes it's a, a difficult thing. Uh, because sometimes, you know, you're at a church, people are like, are you saved? And all of a sudden, people start getting freaked out, like, saved? I don't know what you're talking about. But this word saved actually is not a bad thing at all, but it means to be made whole or complete. How many of you have ever put together a hundred or more piece puzzle before? Raise your hand. If you've done a hundred or more, some of you are like, man, I'm not into puzzles, all right? All right, well, if you're putting together a big puzzle... You come to the end of the time of putting it together, and what often happens? You're missing a piece, right? You're like, I just spent all this time, and I'm missing this one piece. And when Jesus came, he said, I'm the missing piece. If you want the whole portrait of the puzzle of your life to work and to work out best, then you allow me to be the centerpiece of your puzzle. So there is uh, the Lord, there's Jesus, and then finally Christ, God's Son. That He is the person that God said, I'm sending to planet Earth to make things right. So that His great love for us would care for us. Now, you know this phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, it has a lot of power in it. And you know why I know this? Because I've heard it on the golf course before. I can't tell you how many times I've been out golfing before and people are golfing and all of a sudden they hit a shot and they lack power of being able to put that white ball where they want. And all of a sudden they swing and they hit it and they have this lack of power. And pretty soon you start hearing them say, Jesus Christ, oh Lord. And they curse his name out like that. And you know why they do that? Because that name has power. Like I've never been on a golf course before and someone hits a ball and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, Muhammad or oh, Buddha. You know, like I just don't hear that. Now, it's not to say that Muhammad and Buddha weren't wise people or did not have, uh, you know, moral teachings. It's just their names don't have any power. But the Lord Jesus Christ, when people say it, they say it because there is power there. Now, verse 3. It says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with, what's the next word? What is it? Yeah, he says, I always pray with joy. He's like, hey, guys, I'm praying for you all the time. I know I'm in jail, but I really appreciate your gift. And so I'm praying for you. I'm reaching out to you. And I want you to know that I am filled with joy to do this. Because of what? What's it say? What's it say? It says, because of your, what's it say? Your partnership or fellowship. The Greek word here actually is the word koinonia, which actually means fellowship. That's what it means. Now, this word fellowship is kind of like a churchy word. Like, you never go out playing basketball with your guys or going to play softball or, you know, you're out at a game. You're like, yo, what's up? You want to do some fellowship? Anyone ever heard that? No. Or your girlfriends, you're not like, 
hey, girls, we're going on a little shopping experience and what's called recreational shopping. And we're all going to, uh, you know, we're going to have some fellowship. You want the UN? They'd be like, we ain't going with you. Because fellowship is about something more than just hanging out with people and doing your own thing. Fellowship means this, that you share your life deeply together. That you share your life deeply together. And this happens best when it's done in a small group. That's why we have groups for you to get plugged into. Because you won't experience the same connection here as you will in a small group. Or grief share. Why do we have grief share on Monday nights for people to come who are battling the loss that someone in their life who they love has died? Because who understands that more than people who've experienced it? And then all of a sudden you're in a group and you share deeply because everyone's in the room together. Or celebrate recovery. We talked about it earlier. If you have a hurt habit or hang-up that you're struggling with right now, why? Why would you do it by yourself? Why wouldn't you get some help, some connection, Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. It's where you just open up your life a little bit more maybe than you would at work or in any other setting. And it might be scary at first, but this is what I can tell you. Once you do that, you're going to find people around you who are like, we're for you. You say whatever you need to say, but we're for you. We're with you. We will not walk away no matter what. You thrive best in Christianity when fellowship is connected to it. You cannot thrive when it's not. You can't fully understand the joy that God wants to give into your life unless you're connected with a group of people. I mean, in every situation, regardless of the circumstances, you need people around you to remind you, hey, you can still live in joy. You can still live in this joy that says you have the assurance that God is in control of the details of your life. And that ultimately, everything is going to be all right. So until then, we're going to thank him and praise him. Now, for the rest of our time, just real quickly, I want to go through three elements of fellowship. Because that's the crux of what Paul is saying deals with joy. The first one is this. Genuine fellowship is truthful. Genuine fellowship is truthful. Now, some of you might be asking the question, where can I get some of this fellowship? Well, let's look at what it says in verse 5. I have this joy because of your partnership, because of your fellowship in the gospel. The joy of fellowship happens when it's in the gospel. Now, you might say, well, what's the gospel? Well, that's the good news of Jesus, that you're connected to that. That's fellowship. Jesus Christ, folks, was not simply a wise man or just a moral teacher, but he was God. That there is power in his name and that we learn that it is the work of this person of Christ and his strength. Now, some of you might say, well, what did Jesus do? I mean, when you come right down to it, what did he do? What was his work? And scripture says this, this is how much God loved the world. 
He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why. So that no one need be destroyed by believing in him. Anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Jesus came and he gave and he died and he rose again. Why? Because of his great love for you. Jesus doesn't come with an accusing finger looking at you and going, "Ah, I know what you did Thursday night. I know how you've been acting. There isn't this accusation that comes. He says, come to me and we can work it out together for something better in your life and you can live in joy. He came to build a relationship with you and a love that will be there all the time, no matter what. Jesus will always, always love you. Did you realize this, that his love for you is not based upon your love for him? Think about that. His love for you is not based upon whether you love him or not. His desire is to have a relationship with you and to love you no matter what. Folks, if you want to turn on the joy faucet for your life, you get in the gospel by maybe reading this uh, text that we're looking at this week for the rest of the week in Philippians. And you want the joy faucet to come in. You actually reach out to some other people. You say this circle of three thing. It's not just a bracelet that I wear. But these are people whose eternity could be changed if I invested in them in the gospel. Now at this point, some of you might be saying, wow, that fellowship thing, it sounds good. But how long does it last? Because a lot of my friendships, they haven't lasted very long. So how long does this last? Well, the second thing of genuine fellowship is that it's timeless. It's timeless. Folks, once you start this fellowship thing and it starts going on, it never goes away. And you say, well, preacher boy, how do I know that? How do I know that it doesn't go away? Well, Philippians 1.6 says this. I am confident of this, Paul says. I'm I'm sure of this, he says. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is, until the day that he returns, God's good work that he started in you, he is going to complete. And folks, this is fantastic news. Because one of the things you should know about God is this. That God finishes what he, fill in the blank, what he starts. Everything that God starts, he finishes. I mean, when, when God places his hands on a person's life, he doesn't go, up. Oh, here's 15 minutes of me, and then all of a sudden, I'm done. You're too messed up. I don't need anything. You thought you had it right, but you keep falling back. I'm done. When he comes into your life, it is for a lifetime, for eternity. He never walks away. And this scripture that we just read, verse 6, is very important for maybe for you to memorize this week or at least to focus in on. That God who began a good work in you is going to complete it. And isn't that good news? That if you failed as a parent or you messed up as a person, you've done some things and you're like, I don't know. No, no, no. He says, the good work that I started, 
regardless of all your failures, I'm going to complete it. That you're not going to leave anything on the field if you have a relationship with God because he says, I'm going to complete it. Do you know how much comfort that is, folks, for you to know that you're in this life and if you don't get it all right, that God's going to complete it at the end? That if you get some things wrong along the way, that he is going to complete it. I mean, behind the scenes of all this is a doctrine or kind of a a belief system called eternal security. Now, the jar is not this big uh, doctrine, dogma kind of church. We don't talk about this all the time. But this is one of the things that we really do believe. And this is what it says. It says, when a person comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ personally, Jesus will never walk away, but will stick for eternity. That's what this theology or this view of understanding God says, that there is this sense of eternal security, that Jesus never walks away. He never bails on you and me. He doesn't give you the gift of eternal life, and then all of a sudden you have a a few things that you mess up in, and he's like, yep, taking it back. Good luck. He doesn't do that. His relationship with you is permanent. Now, you might be thinking, that's awesome. That's wonderful. I mean, once I say the prayer, once I come to Jesus, I have a relationship with him, then that means I can just go off and do anything I want because I've got this insurance policy. I can do whatever I want because I've got this insurance policy that says I'm in with him. I mean, when someone, though, walks away in a relationship with Jesus, who's the one that walks? Who is it? You, me, people. People are the ones that walk away. Jesus doesn't. And it's one of the most painful things that I've ever had to experience as a pastor of people like, oh, man, they're for Jesus, they're in Jesus. And then all of a sudden they walk away and they just keep walking and their houses get broken and there's more brokenness in their life, and there's pain, and there's a couple of families that I know right now, because they've walked away, they're going through so much pain, so much hurt. And yet the coolest thing is this, that regardless of how far you walk away from God, it's only one you turn to come back to Him. He doesn't care how far you've walked, you turn around and you come back, and with wide arms open, he says, come to me. That's why, honestly, folks, I don't let sin stay in my life more than 24 hours because I need him so badly. And I screw up so much in so many ways that every day got to say, God, let me turn back to you. I need another return to you. In this verse, it says, he who began a good work in you, he will complete it. And because of that, you and I can live in joy. Joy that says that God is in control of all the details of my life. And that things are ultimately going to work out and they're going to be all right. So until then, I will praise God. So genuine fellowship is truthful, it's timeless, and then finally, it's tender. Genuine fellowship is a tender thing. Anytime a person writes a love letter to you, and many of you probably have received one, you read it and you're like, oh, this is so great. And for the first six verses, Paul's like writing this love letter saying, ah, you guys are so great. 
And then he gets to verse 7, and then he says this. It is right that I should feel as I do almost, or as I feel as I do about all of you. Now, when I first read that, I read it better than I just did right then, by the way. But when I first read that, I started laughing. Because you know what Paul's doing? He's like, I'm telling you about all these things. I love you guys. I love you guys. Oh, man, my man card's going to be questioned here. I need to let them all know it is right that I treat you like I do. Just like a typical guy. Okay, I love you, but hey, okay, don't let, you know, let's not get too close here. And, and Paul's like, no, 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 I, I love you guys, but it's right that I do that, that I love you. And I feel this way about you because, and then what's it say? He feels this way because you have a special place in my heart. Do you just say that to anybody? I hope you don't. I hope you don't go around people going, oh, you have a special place in my heart. You only say that to people that are really close to you, right? People that you love, people that you care for. Folks, it's a very tender thing. And it's one of the most meaningful relationships you can have is to be connected with another Christ follower and that your hearts are connected in tender fellowship. Someone who's going to be there through thick and thin. They will not walk away. They are steady. They are present. They are with you. Tender relationships with God's people are the best in the world. One of the most tender relationships I have is with a woman in our church. Actually, she's one of our elders. Uh, Her name's Abby Guthrie. And she's an amazing, amazing woman. She's more like a sister to me uh, than my own sister, to be quite honest. And the reason is, is because 15 years ago, her life was amazingly wonderful. She was a pharmacist. She had her own home. She lived up in northern Indiana, close to her friends and family. Everything was well. And this guy from Muncie goes to her church and talks about a church that he's going to start in Muncie that is going to be a different kind of church, and it's going to be the type of church that will break the mold. And that guy was me. And as I shared this story with this group of people, I was horrible. I mean, it was so bad that people were like, He doesn't know what he's doing. We're not going to move for anything for that. But Abby somehow said, you know what? God's Spirit's moving in me, and I'm willing to leave. And so she left her pharmacy job, her house, and her family. And I was thinking about it this week. When she left her family, she left her mom, her dad, her brother, and her sister-in-law. And there's a scripture that says this, that if you leave your family for my sake, I will actually repeat back to you. I will increase to you. I will multiply to you a hundred times fold. The jar just this past year grew above 400 people. And I'll never forget the Sunday that I went to Abby and I said, Abby, look at your family. Look at your family. And she's been family to me. She's been amazing to me. Last week, I shared with you about my daughter who, when she was born, uh, she was not breathing. The only thing that was working was her heart. And Abby 
was one of those people that was in the waiting room praying and seeking God for my little girl who wasn't even born. When my uncle died, and I was broken to pieces because we were so close, it was Abby who was praying and sending cards and lifting us up. There's never been a birthday party that she hasn't been to of my two girls. She always remembers it. And yesterday, we're driving as a family, and my daughter Jordan is in the back. And I just out of the blue, she's like, there is no one like Abby Guthrie. And I was like, your dad's up here? I mean, (laughs) it's not all that bad. But that tender relationship that you can have with people in the church is better than anything that this world can offer. And it truly is priceless. It's priceless. Now, some of you may be like, well, I want a relationship like that, but you've known her for a long time. That's been 15 years. But you know what? You can have that relationship here. You've got to risk a little bit. You've got to open yourself up. You've got to do fellowship. But if you do so, you can have those relationships too. And I know that there are many of you that do. When you decide to make Christ and his good news message a part of your life, you start building tender relationships with people around you that when you're going through your darkest moment, they don't bail on you. They stay closer to you than a brother or sister. And you'll be amazed at the comfort that comes to you. Well, this tender message continues in verse 7 and 8 when Paul says this, We have shared together the blessings of God, both when I was in prison and when I was out, defending the truth and telling others the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with tender compassion of Christ Jesus. Paul's like, when I was in prison, when I was in trial, and nobody wanted anything to do with me, you didn't forget me. You sent me gifts. You were there. You were present. And I feel so blessed that I'm not alone, that you're with me. And we're together in this. Folks, you can't buy that type of tender relationship. It only is a gift from God that he gives to the church for people to trust and love and to care for one another. But once you experience it, you'll give your life to it. You'll give your very life for the gift that God gives in that. And the joy that comes is filled with so much goodness. Because God is in control of all the details of your life. And ultimately, everything's going to be all right. So I will praise him until then. I'd like to close by just real quick giving you three challenges for the summer. And I want you to pick one of these three. So if you've been falling asleep here for a second and you've been counting like, you know, the uh, intakes there or something. And you're like, okay, well, come back. This is it. That's all you need. Three challenges for this summer. I just want you to pick one of these. Here's the first one. The first challenge is become more loving. Some of you need to think about this question. Am I more loving today than I was a year ago? And if you're not, then you need to become more loving. Paul says this, 
I pray that your love for each other will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in your knowledge and understanding. He's saying, I'm praying for you guys to become more loving to one another. Are you more loving today than you were a year ago? Maybe one of your goals this summer is like, you know what? I'm going to become more loving. I'm going to read these scriptures, but I'm going to become more loving. Second challenge, make better decisions. Make better decisions. Verse 10 says this, For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may be pure and blameless and you will live those kind of lives until Christ returns. Now, anyone here want to make some better decisions this summer than you did last year? Some of you are like, uh, yeah, like big time. Like financial decisions, family decisions, whatever decision that you need, a decision in your marriage, in your work, whatever that is, you can do it. Make Philippians your quest this, this summer that I'm going to read it, and as I do this, I'm going to make decisions, better decisions. Last thing, live a more fruitful life. Live a more fruitful life. Verse 11 says this, May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, those good things that are produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. How could you live a more fruitful life this summer than you did last year? Is there some things in your life that need to get pruned? I've shared this with you before. One of the things that... I've learned in my own life is that sometimes when I walk into the house, I'm not as loving to the people inside the house as I am to all of you or to other folks in my life. And so I have this sign that says, kneel and pray. And I walk in and I go, God, help me be the best man, the best husband, and the best father I can be. And then I walk in. And that's one of the things that to create more fruit in my life, I had to do. So which of those three things... Just pick one. Are you going to go for this summer? Are you going to be more loving? Are you going to work at making better decisions? Or will you learn to live a life that is more fruitful? Well, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up. And I'd invite you to stand. And I'd just like to kind of close us in prayer today. That as you go through this day, that you would know, hey, I got a decision I got to make. A decision to choose joy. That I'm going to choose joy and I'm going to make a commitment to work on one of these three things. To either kind of love more, become more loving. I'm going to work at making better decisions. Or I'm going to live a more fruitful life. Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you so much for your presence being here today. And God, we want to live a more joy-filled life. And so God, would you uh, draw near to us and may you be pleased with your people. God, sometimes it's really hard for us to listen to messages when the message itself isn't where we're at. And God, I know that there are some folks here today that maybe feel joyless, that Things are going on in their life, and they just don't feel that connected. And so we pray, Lord, that you would remind them that they do not walk alone, that you are with them. 
Also, God, help them this summer to make a commitment to read through Philippians. And this week, God, to make a decision. Which of these three things are you asking me to do, God? To become more loving, to make better decisions, or to live a more fruitful life. So, God, would you speak to your people so that your name would be made great. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Steps with Chris right after this. Have a joy-filled week. Know that you're loved in this place, everybody.